of John 17. It'll come up on the screen for you there. John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know that you are the true God and the Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm, praying, I'm not praying for the world, but for, the, uh, for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except for the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they were not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and I love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me wherever I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these that you have sent me. I made, them, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of God. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Rob. Um, as it's been said, I'm one of the elders here at City Light. And I wanted to echo Jez's welcome before, particularly if you're new with us this morning. You might have been, um, this might be the first time you're in church. You might have just been coming for the last few weeks. You have come to what is one of the most incredible passages in the book of John. I wanted to, I guess as well, thank the, the ministry staff for the opportunity to, to preach the Word of God this morning. I know that it is not a light thing. It is a weighty responsibility to be given the platform to publicly preach God's word, and I've been praying that I would do that faithfully. 
Um, I also wanted to thank, I've been so encouraged, the number of people that have been praying for me have kind of talked about why they love this passage. I've, I've just felt incredibly blessed through that, so um, thank you. But, you know, I'd be lying if I said I hadn't been struggling with feelings of inadequacy. Like, who am I to be able to have this opportunity and, and to actually preach the Word of God? But I've been really convicted over the kind of the last few weeks thinking about this passage. The purpose of my inadequacy, my feelings of that, has not been to drive me to despair, but to actually acknowledge that I need God's help and to trust that He is the one that will speak to us. He is the one that will teach us what He would. He is the one that speaks to each of our hearts and transforms us, not me. So... Um, With that in mind, let me lead us in prayer together. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you that, um, yeah, we have the chance to meet together and fellowship. But more than that, we thank you that we have a chance to hear you speaking to us. And regardless of what's been in our weeks, whether it's been a time of celebration or it's just been really hard, we ask that you would be near to each and every one of us. Please quieten our hearts and our minds, Lord, so that we can hear what you have to say to us and help me to speak plainly and faithfully to your word and that we would make much of you in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, growing up as a kid in the Ainsley household, there was one very clear routine that we used to do every single Saturday and Sunday, particularly if we didn't have Saturday sport. Between the hours of 9 a.m. and 12 p.m. every Saturday and Sunday, we would sit glued to Fox 8, watching the Simpsons Marathon episodes back to back and back. And of course, there was a Fox 8 2, which was two hours behind, so you'd crack through the marathon, and great, you could watch them all again. And so, I think if anyone knows me, they know that I love a good TV comedy. Kind of, as a complete show, I think Seinfeld is very, very hard to beat. But if there is a challenger, early seasons of The Simpsons are are pretty great. And now... um, I think few shows are really as sharp or as clever in their humour as The Simpsons, but also I think they manage to blend really great humour with with dealing with themes and storylines that go deep and make some interesting commentaries on our culture and American society. But there there was always one episode that really struck me when it came on, and it involved an episode where Homer takes his family to a new sushi bar called the Happy Sumo. And after eating most of the stuff on the menu, he decides to order the poisonous fugu fish or the puffer fish. Now, many of you probably already know this, but the puffer fish is a real fish. And if you're a Japanese chef, if you're a Japanese restaurant and you want to be able to serve this, you can't just get puffer fish and serve it. You have to go through rigorous training for more than three years to get accredited and licensed um, to be able to serve it. And that's because, as I alluded to, the puffer fish is highly poisonous. Yes, there is good meat in there, but if you were to eat the, the poisonous part, there's a pretty good chance that you would die. And so Homer eats this fish, and through kind of a series of events, he believes that he's consumed the poisonous part. And he uh, is told, he goes to the doctor, and the, the doctor tells him he's had 22 hours to live now. And what kind of ensues for the rest of the episode is Homer working through this bucket list that he's created. Things like, having beers with boys at the bar, telling off his boss, going hang gliding, and even just having dinner with his family. Now, given the episode, it's crazy to think of this. It's nearing 30 years old. I don't really think I need to put a spoiler alert in, but he, uh, we find out at the end of the episode that he's okay and that he's not going to die. But when I was a lot younger, I was really struck by that episode. It was crazy to imagine. 
You know, what would I do in that situation? What would I be thinking? What, I, what would I be feeling? What would my emotions be doing as I was kind of leading up to that 22nd hour? Would I have a bucket list? Would it look like that? Now, thinking of bucket lists, the highly reputable personalexcellence.co forward slash blog forward slash bucket list calls out the top five things that they think should be on everyone's bucket list. Let's say traveling all around the world, learning a new language, trying a profession in a different field, achieving your ideal weight, and running a marathon. Now, thinking of our own, kind of as I was talking about before, think of our own mortality, thinking of death, is not something that we often like to talk about. But I wanted to pose a question to us today. If you had your 22 hours to live, how would you spend your time? What would you do in your last hour? What would you think? How would you act? Where would your mind turn to? You see, when we're faced with life and death, often people's thoughts will turn to the memories of life or maybe even the realities of the next life. But what is clear is that the approach of death has a way of bringing our priorities into a very sharp focus. And so if you were on your deathbed, what would you regret? What would you want to do? What would you look back at and say, man, I wish I'd done X or I wish I, you know, I, wish I hadn't done Y? Does the purpose of your life stand up to the litmus test of death? Because what you live for needs to make, light in sense of, uh, make sense in light of death. Now, in a commentary on what it looks like to live a life not wasted, uh, John Piper makes this observation on what he thinks the American dream is, and I don't think it's too dissimilar to maybe what the Australian dream is. A nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells. And people are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that dream. And so that then begs the question, what would mean a life well lived for you? What would make you say in that final hour, my life was not wasted? Does what you live for make sense in light of death? Now, a few years ago, the Guardian newspaper here sat down with a, a nurse who spent a lot of years um, caring for people in palliative care. So these are people who are in kind of the last 12 weeks of their lives. And she shares a lot of the common themes that came up from patients she was caring from. Some of those things included, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I'd let myself be happier. Well, today's passage tells us that Jesus' death is imminent, and we get a glimpse of what he says is important, what he really cares about, and what we should be striving for. Now, today's passage is what many refer to as the high priestly prayer. So back in the Bible, Bible times, you had the, pri the priest who was kind of that intercessor between God and his people, that go-between. He would go and offer up gifts and prayers and sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. And here we have Jesus, the Son of God, coming before the Father in prayer. And it's an amazing prayer. Jesus knows that he's about to die, and even in the face of death, Jesus prays that he'd remain focused on his Father's mission. And he even prays for us, you and me, in this very room. What does that say about Jesus? That even in the face of a shameful and a bloody death, he's thinking of us. And so on this night before he's arrested, before he's betrayed, 
abandoned, beaten, and nailed to a cross to die a criminal's death, Jesus is stealing himself. And it's a very moving prayer. Jesus knows what is coming and he spends his final hours sharing a meal with his closest friends and praying. In the face of death, he prays. He prays that he would come and do what he came to do, to obey the Father for his disciples and for us to obey and to follow him. And Jesus is also conscious that, yes, he's praying to his Father, but he's also praying so that his followers can hear what he's saying. He speaks that his disciples' hearts may be calm because their salvation was already safe in the hands of God. And like the other accounts Jesus is, of Jesus' prayer, there's a reason John includes it for us to hear. For it so clearly puts on the display the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the unfolding plan of a sovereign God who is in control of all things, and how profoundly and deeply he loves us. And so that's what we're going to look at today. The big idea is that we see through this passage that Jesus is the obedient Son of God, who even in the face of death is all about his Father's glory and his mission. And he calls us as his followers to do the same. That's where this prayer comes from. Jesus is praying for us to follow him. And so there are three aspects or movements of Jesus' prayer that we're going to look at. Jesus prays for himself, for his followers, and for us. So verses 1 to 5 of our passage, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ who you have sent. I, glorify you, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the word existed. Now, Jesus uses this term glory, which is not really a term that we tend to use these days. Probably the most obvious context that we would use it is the context of sport. So lots of people probably at the moment are talking about maybe a country basking in the glory of winning the FIFA World Cup. And it could often mean the act of winning kind of the top prize or being honoured and praised. But what does Jesus mean here? Well, when Jesus says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you, there are certainly some associations to, to praise or to honour. For God's purpose is that all should honour Jesus as they honour the Father. But Jesus isn't looking here for the praise or honor from people. So what's he talking about? And really, if we're honest, what glory is there in an innocent man suffering a bloody and a shameful death, literally nailed to a tree? Well, when Jesus says, glorify your son, he prays that the son may be obedient to fulfill the purpose for which he has come. And that as he is lifted up on the cross, as his blood is spilled, that his sacrifice would be acceptable as this atoning sacrifice for our sins. And as it said there in verse 5, Jesus is praying, Restore to me the splendor I had and I shared with you, Father, before the world began, before I came to earth. Father, glorify me by accepting my sacrifice for the sins of the world and welcome me home. Even the Apostle Paul captures it really well in Philippians 2 where he says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But note here that the glorification of Jesus is not an end in itself. Jesus seeks by his own glorification nothing less than the glory of his Father. And this goes back to what Jez was saying to us before. It is a tremendous insight into the perfect and intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. You have a snapshot. We, saw the whole, we looked at the Holy Spirit last week. This week we see this great snapshot of the Father and the Son. So how does the Son glorify the Father? Well, he does it through the cross. Through the cross, the Son shows who and what God is like. He is both perfectly just in punishing sin. As the Apostle Paul says, the wages of sin is death. But the cross also shows that God is perfectly loving, full of mercy, compassion, and kindness. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper once wrote, His bloody death is the blazing center of the glory of God. Also, it is in and through the cross that Jesus can grant eternal life. For those that trust in Jesus' sacrifice, we are washed clean of our sin. We are no longer under condemnation. That barrier between us and God has been removed. And notice what Jesus says when he talks about eternal life. Heaven is not about stuff. It's not primarily about a place. Heaven is about the sun. And eternal life is not so much everlasting life as it is to personally know the everlasting one. And in this, Christianity stands apart compared to many religions. Many religions tie eternal life to a knowledge of God or of the gods or getting to a place. But Christianity speaks of a relationship with the very one who is life itself. And it is through the cross that we can know God, what he is like, and have a relationship with him. As Tim Keller once wrote, he said, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we'd ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we'd ever dared hope. And can I also turn your attention to these words speaking 700 years before Jesus. An Israelite prophet said these things about a suffering servant who would come. He said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The glory of the cross is that God would save sinners by sending us the one who would be pierced for us. In this moment, we see the revelation of God's character in the fulfillment of his stated promises. Now, a couple of years ago, my wife, Danielle, and I were fortunate enough to go over to the States and to go hiking in some of the national parks just outside of Seattle and Portland. And it was really exciting. But in the kind of the weeks leading up to it, um, I was just thinking so much about the beautiful places that we would go. And in my, like, severe anal retentiveness... I was looking at all of the trails that we would go on and mapping those out and what camera gear would I bring and what would I take on what trails. It was, yeah, anyway. Um, and yes, the places were really beautiful. But was, what was far more valuable was how much my wife and I actually connected on that trip. Each day the value came more in the conversation that we were having and what we were learning about each other. It became less about the place 
and more about the person that I was with. Friends, the place that we're going to, heaven, yes, it will be beautiful. But the one we will be with is to be valued and pursued all the more. Brothers and sisters, do we actually see the plan and the overall goal of God? Heaven is not about stuff, it is about Jesus. And our faith is not based on some set of beliefs or statements, but upon a person, Jesus Christ, who is life itself. So will we trust him here and now? And we need to remember that eternal life is not just about having life after death. It is about a living relationship with Jesus. And we can look forward to a time when we can enjoy and treasure him forever. For those of us here, this might be your first time at church. You might have just been coming uh, along for a few weeks. Do you know this eternal life? Jesus told us a few weeks ago in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So point one, Jesus prays for himself that he'd be obedient and do what he's come to do. Secondly, he prays for his followers. And it's not really that surprising that he now turns to pray for his followers. He's about to leave them in the world alone and wants them to continue as his followers and they need supernatural help. And although this is a prayer for his disciples, there is much for us to hear. And Jesus gives this to us for that reason. So Jesus kind of identifies a few things if they're going to continue as his followers. So he prays for their safety, their sanctification, I'll explain what that means, and for their joy. So verse 11, Jesus prays, I am, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. About 12 years ago, I went and... Um, left Australia and lived in Canada for a year, which was very exciting. But up until then, I was a very, very sheltered North Shore, upper North Shore boy. Boat shoes, popped collars, where back in the Liberal Party was just a given. Um, if you'd asked me where Epping was, I would have absolutely no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> Literally, I kid you not, first year uni, during orientation week, a guy came up to me and said he was from Epping. And I was like, what's... Like, what even is an epping? Like, I have no idea where that is. <laughs> I was always living, I was quite sheltered, but I was always living under the safety and the security of my parents. And I was always able to rely on them. So we arrived at the airport. Dad kind of took me in, took me through security, checked in. But I'll never forget that sinking feeling when he said goodbye and I was there on my own. I didn't have their protection or their security in the event that something happened to me. And so for you, have you ever been in a situation or a season where you felt alone? Like really alone, like everyone has left and it is just you alone. This is what's about to happen to the disciples. Up until now, the disciples have had Jesus with them. He's taught them, he's protected them, he's guided them. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him and the hostility he's going to face. And he's already said back in chapter 15 that they will be hated because of him. He's worried and so he prays for them. In verses 15, 14 and 15, Jesus prays, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. See, the world hates that they hold to the truth of sin and that we need a saviour. 
Don Carson puts it like this. He says, the world loves its own and the disciples are not of the world, but are of God and his revelation. This revelation in presenting the truth and commanding assent condemns the world and exposes its evil and the world snarls in savage rage. And notice too here that Jesus' prayer is not that they be taken out of the world as if they should retreat and live in kind of closed off communities like in a bubble. His prayer is that while it's in the world, that they be protected from the evil one, from Satan. Satan and the world are formidable enemies and the disciples are soon to find out what that means. Brothers and sisters, being a follower of Jesus means that we're to be in the world, engaging with our world. Being a follower of Jesus does not mean that we are free to live in ease and pleasure. There will be dangers and trials of all kinds, but it does mean in the midst of danger, our salvation remains safe with God and he will help us in those trials. And there will be many trials that we face at our campuses at university, in our workplaces, even maybe in our own families. But God promises to give us the strength that we need and the perseverance so that we will not be overwhelmed by the battles that we face. And quite simply, in this, in this section, Jesus prays. How about us? How do we respond in trials and suffering? Jesus is worried and he turns to the one who can do something about it. And what a privilege that we can pray. Jesus then prays that they grow and, and be sanctified as his followers. He says in verse 17 to 19, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now again, this word sanctified is not really something that we, we kind of tend to use in everyday language now. But it actually comes from this word holy, which at its kind of most fundamental or simplistic level, God is described as holy. He is other. He is distinct. He is separate from his creation. There is no one, there is no thing that is quite like him. And referring to his disciples, Jesus prays that they be sanctified or that they be set apart. Jesus prays that they would be set apart for God's purposes, that they would do what God wants and hate what God hates. But we also see here that Jesus is saying that the means of their sanctification is the truth. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so for us, if we're followers of Jesus, we are God's children and he is our father. Out of a new identity, we are to be listening to our father and spending time with him to know him more, his character, the things of his heart and of his mission. And so practically we see here that no one can be sanctified without being in his, world, uh, in his word and pursuing a life that is increasingly brought into conformity with the word he has given us. Now, is there any other purpose to sanctification? Well, yes, there is. Every time John uses this term in his gospel, it is in the context of mission. And so we see that God just doesn't want us to be sanctified or his people to be sanctified merely for their own sake. God has given his followers a mission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Bruce Milne says this, he says, It is the Father's holiness which is the basis of the Son's mission. And that holiness in its separation from sin and its dedication to the way of righteousness, Jesus now desires 
in the disciples. The mission is one of light confronting darkness. Its instruments, hence, must be the sons of the light who do not walk in darkness. They are to be set apart for the gospel. Brothers and sisters, is this something that we think about? Or are we so focused on our own spiritual growth and maturity that we forget the fact that Jesus has set us apart to then send us out to be witnesses and a light and to preach the good news of the gospel? That's why, as, as Jeremy mentioned, our mission at City Light is to see people who don't yet know Jesus come into real relationship with him. That's why we're planting a campus, God willing, in Burwood. And so for us today as well, how does our life look compared to the world? Because believing in Jesus will put us at odds with our culture and what it values most. It may even put us in tension in our homes, at work or with friends. And Jesus doesn't want us to be private Christians. He has sent us into the world to engage with our world and to proclaim the message of hope held out in the gospel. So Jesus prays for safety, sanctification, and finally for joy. In verse 13, he says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now again, joy. That may seem like a really unusual thing for Jesus to be praying at the moment. He knows what's in store for him. He knows what's in store for his disciples. Why would he pray that they would have joy? What's he getting at? Well, a couple of things. I think Jesus is saying something maybe similar to what he said a little bit earlier in John 14 when he's talking about the Holy Spirit who would soon come. In John 14, verse 29, he says, And I have told you, his disciples, before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Now, there were often times when the disciples really didn't fully understand what Jesus was doing or what he was saying, and now things are kind of quickly accelerating. Things are happening so fast. Many of them can't even comprehend the idea that God's king would suffer and be crucified. But if Jesus is saying these things now to his disciples, there would soon come a time where they would realize the significance of all that took place. They'd soon learn that Jesus really did know what he was doing, that he was, what he said was true that he wasn't just some liar or a lunatic. And despite the appalling suffering he was about to endure, Jesus had joy in doing his Father's will. And he prays that his obedience and all that he would fulfill would become the basis for their joy. Brothers and sisters, we know that living as a follower of Jesus will mean being hated, ridiculed, maybe even parts of our world killed. And while God never promises that we will be taken out of those situations, we need to consciously look to the cross and at our crucified Savior and His resurrection. We're to take heart and have confidence that Jesus has overcome the world, that our sin is nailed to the cross, and that that through His finished work, our salvation is already safe. And so in what circumstances of your life do you particularly need to remember that? How will that make a difference to your emotions or your actions? So Jesus has prayed for himself. He's prayed for his disciples. Point three, he prays for us. Now, I don't know, how do you feel when someone shoots you a message or tells you that they've been praying for you? Here we have no less than the living God himself praying for us. Verses 20 to 23, it says, I do not ask for these only, his disciples, 
But for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Now, there's a lot, it's quite a complex passage to kind of get your head around. I and you, you and me, like it's, it's pretty complex. But Jesus here is praying for unity. The good news of the gospel reminds us that God has rescued us from our sin and brought us into his family. We in this very room are the family of God. No matter our culture or race or age or occupation, on the basis of the gospel, we are one. Now, that's not to say we're not to celebrate diversity or culture, but it says that on the basis of our salvation and our standing before a holy God, we are all saved through Christ alone. And the purpose of this prayer is for unity, and it's there in verses 21 and 23. 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. So why is our unity a powerful argument for the truth of Jesus' claims? If we're to find our unity based on institution or race or tradition, then we find ourselves thinking like our world. It doesn't make sense to our world to see people loving and serving each other when it doesn't make sense, when we would never normally have had anything to do with each other. That is what catches the world's eye. I remember the very first time I stepped into a church on my sheltered upper north shore. But when I walked in there, there were people of all ages, of backgrounds and stages of life, genuinely talking to each other and sharing their lives with one another. They were even doing that after the, the service, you know, at the end of a very long week and, and, you know, at the start of a new week. And that was the biggest thing, I think, that I noticed that night. And soon after, the guy that invited me to church invited me to his small group to kind of read the Bible and, and share a meal. And again, you had older men and women dedicating their lives to those who were younger and vice versa. And the more that I got to know what was happening, the more I came to realize that these these people weren't united by something outward, but by something inward, by a shared fellowship in Jesus and a commitment to his gospel. Church, through our unity, we are to magnify Jesus and not to obscure him. And the question for us is, are we expressing that unity well? So Jesus has prayed for himself and for his glory, for his disciples and for us in this very room. Jesus has shown himself to be God's obedient son who has dedicated his entire life to his father's glory and his mission. And he calls us as his followers to do the same. God invites us into the work that he is doing in this world. That is amazing. And at the end of the prayer, He prays that we would be with him and that we would see his glory. Now, how is that possible and why? We were talking before about the set-apartness, the holiness of God. How can God remain holy and still be faithful to us who break his commands? How can God remain holy and allow sinners like us to stand in his presence and, as Jesus says, to see my glory? We're to look to the cross 
See the one who obeyed God perfectly even to death on a cross and fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf, whose performance and life become ours so that when God looks down at us, he sees Jesus. We're washed clean. Look at the cross and see the one who emptied himself of everything, who was stripped naked and was cast out so that we could be brought into the family of God and clothed in his righteousness. As a challenge for today, are you truly following Jesus? Because that will mean that we actually follow him and have a heart for his mission and what he's doing in this world. How radically different does your life look? What you value, what's on your bucket list compared to the world? And as a comfort in the midst of trials and loneliness and rejection and suffering, take heart and look at the one who has overcome the world who experienced the greatest trial and suffering that, we could ever, that could ever be, as a perfectly righteous man became sin and hung broken on a cross for sinners who didn't ask for it or deserve it, so that we could be forgiven. Who endured the greatest abandonment and rejection there ever was as his friends ran away and his very own father turned his face away, so that we would not truly be abandoned and rejected, but welcomed with open arms into God's family and have his spirit in us. I'll leave you with uh, the words of Jesus himself from John 16, 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, you are indeed worthy of all glory. Thank you for your son Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross so that we can clearly see both your perfect justice and your perfect love. Thank you that his obedience, his performance are now ours, that when you look at us, you see your son, you see our sin no more. Father, we confess that we have not obeyed you as we ought, for there are many areas of our lives where we're not living in obedience to you. We're choosing to go our own way, and there are areas of our lives that look too much like our world. Father, bring us to a deeper and a fresh revelation of who you are and what you've done for us in your Son. And Father, in these moments or these seasons where standing up for you means trials or hardship, help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Help us to remember that because of his finished work, our salvation is already safe in your hands. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take some time now to reflect on what we've just heard. You might want to spend this time in prayer. You might want to read through the passage again. And then we're going to come back together and celebrate and sing.